Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. God, we just are here today and we're people who so easily become anxious, so easily become worried about things that that maybe we shouldn't be worrying about. In fact, your word tells us that we are not to worry. Do not worry, your word says. And so God, we, we recognize and we just acknowledge that there are things in our lives that seem like huge obstacles to us. And, um, and they are not obstacles to you. In fact, they are opportunities for you to show your power and to show your glory. And so, God, this morning as we gather in this place, um, we're challenged with, one, with an obstacle. It's, it's this discussion that Brian's going to lead us in this morning about the problem of your existence. Some of us here today believe that you exist, and maybe we don't believe it very strongly. Maybe we've never really thought about it that much, and maybe there are people here today who do not believe that you exist at all. Maybe life has been hard. And so, God, I just pray this morning that as Brian speaks, and as we sing this next song, that, that you would remove those barriers, those obstacles, and that, God, that we would not be able to leave this place this morning still believing that you do not exist, but, God, that you would, through your truth, by the power of your Spirit, show us that you exist, that we would not be able to leave this place without believing that you, in fact, do exist. And so, God, um, in your power, we, uh, we acknowledge that you are, are incredible, that you can remove these obstacles and that you can move mountains, in fact. And so we want to sing about that this morning, about how you can and have and will continue to remove mountains and obstacles in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. God, we believe that you are real. We believe that you are exi- that you exist and we believe you are powerful. And we believe that you are capable of removing obstacles, God, and we think of our city here. And um, and God that you have a desire to reach people in this city for you. And so God, if people are new here today and and don't know about you, God, we are so happy that they are here today. And God, we are excited to see you move ways that you choose. So we just invite your spirit here. Speak through Brian this morning. And uh, we love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Grab a seat. So as Alistair talked about, we're launching into a new sermon series today called The Problem of God. And what we're talking about with this sermon series is we're going to be talking about the real problems that people have with God. We're going to be talking about topics that, that often want us to question God's existence or question who he is and say, why does all this matter? See, with this sermon series, we're digging into kind of some of these tough issues. And if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, we were doing a ser- sermon series called Don't Be a Troll about how do we have tough conversations 
Well, folks, now we're jumping into the tough conversations, and we want to talk about these topics because they're topics that really matter to us and to our world. And uh, I just want to invite you once again to join in on the conversation with our YouVersion Bible app because you're going to get a lot out of it if you follow along, and it's also an opportunity for you to share your questions as we go. And so there's a key idea for this whole sermon series. Everyone has a belief system, even atheists and agnostics. Everyone has something they choose to believe in, something that frames our worldview, how we understand, how we shape the world, how we process and take in information. All of that is part of a belief system. Everyone has a belief system. And so as we go through this, there's a key point in this that I want to really help us drive towards and understand, and that's that it's better to base our beliefs on what is true rather than what we feel or what we want to be true. Wouldn't it be better to have how we, shape, how we see the, un, the world around us, how we understand based on truth and fact? And that's what we're going to dive into with this series. We're going to be going kind of further into some of these topics, and we're going to deal with these problems, these topics, with one kind of foundational rule, and that's the fact that we're not allowing any straw man arguments. We're not going to deal with the weakest form of any argument against God or against these topics we're going to dive into. We're going to deal with the strongest steel man arguments because we know that truth always prevails, that truth will always win out in the end. And so as we go through this, these are kind of the topics we're digging into. Today we're going to be talking about God's existence. As we go through, we're going to be talking next week the problem of science, the problem of evil and suffering, the problem of, problem of hypocrisy. That's kind of a really big one that oftentimes people say, you know, I, I'd love going to church, I just don't like Christians. And so we're going to dive into that topic of hypocrisy. Thanksgiving weekend, we're going to be talking about the problem of sex. We're going to be talking about the Christian ethic and what scripture actually talks about sex. So that's going to be one you don't want to miss. Then we're going to dig into the problem of exclusivity. And lastly, we're going to dig into the problem of Jesus. Did Jesus really exist? Is he really who he said he was? And so I want to invite you, as we go through this sermon series, maybe you've had conversations about these topics with people. Maybe consider inviting them to come with you to say, hey, we're going to explore this together. Why not invite someone if you know someone that's wrestled with these things together? Now, as we go through this whole series, we're actually basing this sermon series on a book called The Problem of God by Mark Clark. And Mark Clark is a pastor of Village Church uh, out in Vancouver, B.C. And I highly recommend, like, we're going to be blasting through these topics kind of quick. If you want to dive into them deeply, check out this book. You can get it on Kindle. You can get it on audiobook if you prefer that way. And then you can really dive into the roots of what we're talking about today um, and throughout this sermon series and a few more topics that we're not going to be able to get into. And so as we go through this, we're talking about today the problem of does God exist? And what we want to do with this is we're not just going to take, well, the Bible says so. We're not just going to take, well, I believe. We want to get past the subjective, and we want to dig into what is objective. What are the rational and logical reasons to believe that God exists? Why is that true, and why does it matter? And fortunately for us, this is a topic that is not new to the 20th century. This is not a topic that's new to Western civilization. This is a topic that goes back thousands and thousands of years to some of the greatest philosophers and minds have wrestled with this topic of does God exist and how can we recognize, how do we understand that, how do we come to that? And um, there's tons of different angles we could take at this, but we're going to lean on a guy named Immanuel Kant 
who lived 1724 to 1808. And Immanuel Kant summarized it down. He said this. He says, there's two broad categories to believe in the existence of God. The moral law within and the starry hosts above. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to dig into these two pieces. The moral law within and the starry hosts above and what they say about God's existence. So we're going to start with this moral law. And see, what we're talking about this is, have you ever had, or maybe you've watched someone else have a fight with someone or a squabble, like a disagreement. Uh, maybe you've watched it with your kids and one of them points to them and says, that's not fair, that's not right, you offended me, you hurt me. See, every one of us across culture, across the world, has a sense of right and wrong. And we have this higher standard that when someone fails us, we point to that higher standard and we say, you know, why weren't you caring? Why weren't you loving? Why did you do whatever it was that offended you? See, there's this sense of moral law, of right and wrong, that we all intrinsically have. And so philosophers and theologians and and people wrestle with this topic because either the universal human sense of a moral law came from a moral law giver, or it didn't come from a moral law giver. Either our sense of right and wrong comes from somewhere, or it didn't, because it has to be one of the two. And so we're going to kind of dig into this for a moment, because this is observable across the world, across any different people group, any different country, that there is this sense of right and wrong. So where does it come from? See, What I want to do with this is let's take the example, what if it doesn't come from anywhere? And there's actually a name for that term. It's called moral relativism, or someone who follows that would be called a moral relativist, of saying that morals are just relative. It's just whatever you choose to be right and wrong is right and wrong for you. And it sounds kind of nice at first, doesn't it? You know, we can just make up our own right and wrong, and everyone can do that. But the problem with moral relativism, of saying there isn't a moral lawgiver, is that it's a bankrupt position. Because if we say everyone has the right and the ability to choose their own right and wrong, it means that we do not have the right to be offended or upset about anything at all. Imagine someone steals your car. Well, maybe in their sense of right and wrong, stealing isn't wrong. So how can I project my sense of right and wrong on someone else. If they say stealing isn't wrong, why don't they just take my stuff? How can I be offended if I believe that our moral sense of law didn't come from anywhere? It's just all relative. Right and wrong is up for each person to make up. See, this isn't a foundation for any way to relate with one another. Consider it this way. Maybe you and your siblings, maybe your younger sister are traveling somewhere and you come across this tribe of completely uncontacted people. They've never met anyone from the outside world and you get to be the first two people that witness this culture and what they formed. And somehow you get past the language barrier and they say to you, it's our tradition when we meet someone new, we kill the younger one, we cook them and we eat them because we're a tribe of cannibals. See, a moral relativist has to stop in this moment and say, okay, this is right for them. Their whole culture is based on allowing cannibalism. So am I going to let them cook and serve me, my little sister? Now, if you've had a fight with your sibling this morning, maybe you're going, huh, that's not such a bad idea. No, please don't. Please don't. But here's the problem. If we are moral relativists, if our sense of moral law didn't come from somewhere, We have 
no right to be offended. We have no right to judge. We have no right to say that is collectively right or that is collectively wrong. The position of moral relevancy, that our morals are just made up of our own, is bankrupt. And in fact, this is something that Scripture even talks about during the time of Judges. It's this time where the Israelites have moved into the land and they have no like they have no central king or leadership. In fact, each tribe is supposed to be governed by their relationship with God. And the very last verse of the book of Judges, that's this time period, says this. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And if you read through the narrative of Judges, this is the conclusion of the book, the very last verse. And what the author of Judges is pointing out and saying, when the people just did whatever they wanted things fell apart. And the book of Judges is the story of God time and time again rescuing the people because they did exactly this. Because they just did whatever was right in their own eyes. They strayed from God. They would get oppressed. They would get overrun. They would worship other idols. And God would raise up a leader to come in and rescue them, draw them back to God. And the cycle repeated seven times. See, when we take this position of saying there is no moral lawgiver, we can just do whatever we want, it's bankrupt, it falls apart, it doesn't hold any water. So how do you decide what is just and unjust? How do you decide what's right and wrong in a world where everyone's sense of just and unjust is a product of their own mind? You can't. There is no way for this. And in fact, there is one attempt at this. There's an attempt called the natural evolutionary response, which comes from Charles Darwin. And what Charles Darwin got to was he observed species evolve. And he came up with this whole theory of natural selection, that, that everything on the earth is geared towards procreation and carrying on its genes to the next generation. Darwin created this whole field of naturalistic evolution or um, a naturalist bio- biological perspective that has dominated the whole scientific field. But it loses something. It misses out on something important that Scripture actually points to. See, in Paul's letter to Rome, he said this. He said, Romans 2, 14 and 15, he said, Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law, that meant the the Jewish Scriptures, show that they know God's law when they instinctively obey it. Even without having heard it, they demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts. For their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them and tell them they're doing right. See, when we have this intrinsic sense, and and I believe fully our sense of moral law came from a moral lawgiver. This is what Paul talks about. But Darwin couldn't handle that. Darwin tossed that out when he took this whole sense of natural selection. Now, I'm not saying that someone who doesn't believe in a moral lawgiver can't be good. I'm not saying that at all. See, no one, not even atheists and agnostics, argue that a sense of moral law does not exist. We only disagree on where it comes from. So this is where Darwin enters the picture. See, he states that a person's deepest desires and their sense of moral right and wrong is determined by what will advance their own genetic material to the next generation. So he says that people being kind to one another isn't about doing right, it's because they think that being kind to someone else will help them advance their own genetic material, their offspring, to the next generation. And something like altruism, something like being deeply kind and caring to someone, 
is just a misfire of neurons in your brain, and we should actually work to eradicate that out of our lives. If something doesn't directly benefit us, we shouldn't do it. That's naturalism and what it says. So it would say that our sense of right and wrong just comes out of what protects our society, what protects our family, what protects our offspring. And that's their process. But there's a problem with this. See, Charles Darwin's great work that many of you probably have heard the title is called Origin of the Species. But Origin of the Species is only the first four words of the title. In fact, the title of the book goes on a lot longer than that. And I want to share a quote from you of what Darwin says about this naturalistic perspective and what it leads to. Because if we're just trying to progress our own offspring and, and, and survive and live, this is what Darwin says it leads to. He says, man scans with scrupulous care the character and pedigree of his horses, cattle, and dogs before he matches them. But when it comes to his own marriage, he rarely or never takes any such care. Both sexes ought to refrain from marriage if they are in any way marked degree, uh, any way marked degree inferior in body or mind. And the full, cop, full title of his work is called On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle of Life. This is the foundation of what is accepted of naturalistic evolutionary biology. That Darwin started with this thought. And his cousin, a guy named Francis Galton, was, became obsessed with this concept. He took Darwin's thoughts... And he said, how do we take this further? He got enthralled with this idea and he moved forward and he created an entire field of science that was called eugenics. Now, eugenics is Greek. The, the prefix eu, eu, means good. And eugenics means good genes. How do we propose for good genes to be advanced and genes that are faulty or have an issue to not move forward? See, there's a silver lining in this, of they felt that if we followed this theory, if we followed this naturalist evolution to its, to its logical conclusion, that we would be able to create a humanity that is more advanced and free from hindrances. Kind of, you know, sounds almost good. But what happened? So this is late 1800s into the early 1900s through 1910, 1920. This idea started to really catch on. And there was eugenic societies formed all throughout the world, especially in Europe, North, uh, the U.S., and even here in Canada. And what they did with this, in, and this happened in Canada, in Alberta and B.C. in 1925 and 1933, they started programs of compulsive sterilization. If anyone was marked unfit, if someone was deemed to have a lower than the standard IQ, they were sterilized against their will so they could not procreate. And they believed that we were doing what we were designed to do by evolution to progress as a society by removing the weakest links. This is the outcome of naturalistic understanding of how our sense of moral law comes from. And you know what? It actually gets a little bit worse. Because in the 1930s, a political party in Germany, known as the Nazi Party, rose to power. And as the Nazi Party became a dictatorship, they created this program that they called racial hygiene. And it was that they would only 
allow and endorse the procreation of people who met their standard for what was the ideal. In fact, this is what Adolf Hitler wrote in 1925. He said, If nature does not wish that the weaker individuals should mate with the stronger, she wishes even less that a superior race should intermingle with an inferior one. See, if we know our 20th century history, we know that this led to the worst genocide, this led to the Holocaust, this led to the attempt to eradicate entire nations. Millions of people were killed because of this idea that if our sense of right and wrong comes from a naturalist evolutionary perspective, then we must follow it to its logical conclusion. And the logical conclusion is that anyone who does not meet our standard should not be allowed to live. Now, as you're sitting here, I hope this makes you feel sick. See, I, I feel awful just talking about this. It's disgusting. See, that sense of disgust, that taste in the back of your mouth that feels vile right now, that is evidence of God. This is what Mark Clark says in his book. The very fact that something within us is repelled by racism, sexism, and unequal treatment of the poor and disabled begs the question that such convictions would have to come from somewhere, for they are not natural. This is the conclusion of the naturalistic perspective that our moral law is just a creation of our evolutionary biology leads to the greatest atrocities that have happened. So I want to ask this question. This is one you can respond to uh, online through the app, and we're going to talk about it together. Think and try and find the root of your personal convictions. What has caused you to define what is right and what is wrong? Maybe reflect on that for a moment. And you can respond through the YouVersion app. You can just click the little link, um, and that's going to pop up on my screen later. And we're going to have a discussion about these together to say, you know, we want to hear from each other. Where does this sense of right and wrong, where do our convictions actually come from? All right, I want to take us back to Immanuel Kant for a moment. He said the two great reasons for God come down to the moral law that's universally recognizable. And the second part, he said, was the starry hosts above. Now, how many of you have taken time when you've been out of the city and away from streetlights and on a clear night you've looked up and you look at the millions and millions of stars that are across the night sky? Or maybe you've seen the pictures that things like the Hubble telescope have shown us and we see this unimaginable beauty of nebulas and galaxies throughout the world. See, for, well, since the dawn of human civilization, we've looked up at the stars And we feel this sense of insignificance. We say, where did this all come from? Where did this come from? See, there's a a concept that goes back to the 5th century BC. Plato and Aristotle were guys that really progressed and came up with this. And it's this term called contingency. Now, contingency says that if something begins to exist, its existence is dependent on something outside of it that preexisted it, causing it to come into being. Now think about this for a moment. All of us are sitting here. You know, maybe you saw some of the littler kids running around. You have to think, does anyone ever think about the fact that you were once a two-month-old baby? Doesn't that seem a little weird? You were once two months old. You were once born. You know, in fact, the fact that you're sitting here means that at some point your parents met each other. 
And, you know, maybe there was some love in the air. You know, they got married. Maybe there was some candles. Maybe there was some wine involved. All of you are getting slightly disgusted by this train of thought. But we all came from somewhere. Something pre-existed us, our parents, and caused us to come into being. It's a fact of life, folks. We're going to dig into more of this later. No, actually, we're we're not going to dig into that aspect of it later. Because I don't want to go there. But think of it this way. If everything that exists had to come from somewhere, everything that exists had something that pre-existed this. Now, before 1929, the question that the scientific community, whenever they said, where did the universe come from? They just said, well, the universe has always existed. In fact, the the universe just is what it is. But something changed in 1929. A guy named Edwin Hubble, using the most powerful telescope that humanity had ever created, discovered something incredible. See, all of the scientific literature up to the point said the universe was a fixed size. It had boundaries and markers, and that's what it was, and nothing more. But Hubble was able to measure and understand and realize that all the galaxies, everything in our universe, is expanding outwards away from itself. And he realized that if our universe is expanding away from itself, that we could basically turn back the clock And our universe would actually shrink back together down to a single point. And he wrote and proposed what is called the Big Bang Theory. Now, when Edwin Hubble came up with the Big Bang Theory in 1929, he was rejected and ridiculed by the scientific community because his theory gave too much credit to the Judeo-Christian concept that a supernatural being created the universe. The Big Bang Theory was outright rejected. Now, remember how we said at the beginning, we want to base our beliefs on what is true, not what we want to be true? The entire scientific community took Hubble's data and said, nope, not going to believe it. And in fact, it took decades. And time and time again, when his experiments and his calculations were done over and over and over and over again before the scientific community finally said, okay, Hubble was right. And in fact, this is the only really widely accepted theory of where did this all come from? The Big Bang. At some point, all matter, all space, all time was in one single point. Now now there's a question this begs. If there's contingency involved, where did this come from? If matter, what makes up everything, only began at the Big Bang, what was before matter? Whatever caused the Big Bang has to be immaterial, mean it's not made of matter, and it has to transcend the very universe itself, because it has to be different than what matter is. See, this is what Dr. Francis Collins, director of the National Institutes of Health, former director of the Human Genome Project, has to say. The Big Bang Theory calls out for a divine explanation. It forces the conclusion that nature had a defined beginning. I cannot see how nature could have created itself. Only a supernatural force outside of space and time could have done that. This is the guy who led the Human Genome Project, mapping our whole human genome. I mean, this is a brilliant guy. And he says, you look at the Big Bang, and the only logical conclusion is that something outside of space and time created it. See, if you ask, there's, there's a lot of theories about what was before the Big Bang. And what's shocking to me is the predominantly accepted view amongst scientists who are atheists and agnostic is what's called the nothing theory. What existed before the Big Bang? Nothing. 
kind of doesn't work that way, does it? See, imagine this. Maybe you are, uh, it's late at night, you and your spouse have gotten into bed, and suddenly you hear this crazy big crash. Sounds like your front window was just smashed out. Now, which one of you, point, if you're sitting here with your spouse, which one of you goes to investigate things that go bump in the night? Okay, so you're the one, <laughs> you're the one that goes down the stairs, and what do you discover? A brick was thrown through your front window, smashed completely. And you go, I really don't want to deal with this. So you just go back up the stairs to bed, and your wife says, honey, what, what caused the crash? Nothing. Is, is your spouse going to accept that? Not a chance. See, if something happens, anything happens at all, something had to cause it. Something existed before it. This is what Francis Collin is getting at. Only a supernatural force outside of space and time could have done that. Now, we're digging a little bit into the science side, but actually next week we're going to go into this a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more, and we're going to look at this whole issue of, like, is the is faith anti-science or pro-science? We're going to dig into all that next week. This is kind of just a taste of it today. But the Big Bang demands this explanation. In fact, if we look at Scripture, we start realizing this is what God has been saying to us all along. John 1 the beginning of John's gospel, he says this, in the beginning, the word, and he's using this, this, this is kind of coded language for Jesus because there's a point he's trying to make a little later on. He says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed at the beginning with God. God created everything through him. Okay, there's something existed before and then everything's created. And nothing was created except through him. This is the only source of creation. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. Huh. Seeing some parallels? Let's keep going. John 4, 24, Jesus, when he was questioned, says this, for God is spirit. God is not material. God is beyond material. He transcends the universe. We go to the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, nothingness. Darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God, again, an immaterial, transcendent God, was hovering over the surface of the waters. Our scriptures have been pointing to what it took until 1929 for a scientist to figure out. Kind of interesting, huh? Does it make you scratch your head a little bit? How about this? We all know who Stephen Hawking is. If the rate of expansion, one second, actually, sorry, I've got to preface this. Some people would say, wait a second, the Big Bang is just chance. It's just theory. It just happened, and the odds were just the way, lucky us, it all worked out this way. But the odds of the Big Bang actually happening are so ridiculously astronomical. In fact, if you've ever played poker, you know the odds of getting dealt a royal flush is very low. Now, the odds of the Big Bang happening the way it did and for the universe to be created, for a place like Earth to show up, for God to plant humanity here and all this to happen would, is actually about 20 times larger than the odds of you sitting down to play poker and being dealt a royal flush for every single hand if you spent every single second of your life sitting at that poker table dealing dealt cards and you got a royal flush, royal flush, royal flush every single time from now until the moment you die. Now, you only get three hands before you're getting dragged out of that casino and beaten to a pulp, right? Because they're going to assume you're cheating. 
That's how crazy the odds are. This is what Stephen Hawking's had to say about the odds. If the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million millionth. Okay, I tried to do the math. I'm not super great at fractions that small, but that's about one with somewhere around like, what was it, like 1,800 zeros behind it? That's a tiny number. If the rate was smaller by that tiny, tiniest of amounts the universe would have recollapsed and shrunk back in on itself and recollapsed before it ever reached its present size back into a hot fireball. The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are religious implications. Stephen Hawking points to the utter chance of all this happening and says it can't be chance. There is a religious implication to all of this. So I want to ask this second question. If morality, cosmetology, the des- um, cosmology, and the design of the universe don't point towards a creator, what do you think they point towards? I'm, I'm, I'm throwing this open as a what if. If we look at the moral lawgiver, if we look at the starry heavens, the cosmology, the cosmos around us, if we look at the design of this, that all this happened not by chance, if you think they don't point to a creator, then what do they point to? And, and this is one, I just, we just want to share our thoughts on this, and we're going to dive into more of this next week. So I want to invite you, if you have the Uversion app open, you can type something in, and it'll pop up here, and then we'll have a little, well, we're pushing past 12, and I know everyone's getting hungry, and I'm hungry too. So we're going to kind of move through this kind of quick. So let's begin with this first part. Think and try to find the root of your personal convictions. What's caused you to define what is right and wrong? And a few, two comments in here, one saying, I think it began with my parents, that whole piece of being taught and instructed that way. It's been adjusted since then from people I've respected and spent time with. And that's kind of interesting because it implies like our personal convictions, we want them to evolve and grow over time, don't we? We don't want to think and reason as a child when we're an adult, do we? And the second comment here is saying, you know, that the root of this is saying, I don't want to hurt another person or take away from them in any way. That Love, compassion, altruism is what they're getting at. And so Drew's got a microphone. If you want to add something to this conversation, just stick up your hand. Drew's going to bring it to you. But how about this? What's the root of your personal convictions? Where do you think it comes from? Any, any thoughts on that? Here, just up at the front here, Drew. I think it would have a little bit something to do with nature and nurture kind of combined. And it would be something that sort of instilled within you. Otherwise, we wouldn't have feelings like guilt and conscious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, okay, there's a pile you just said in that there. It's really cool. The whole nature-nurture debate that's been, you know, raging. What influences us more? Is it our, our nature or is it our nurture, how we're raised? But I actually think both of those, nature and nurture, point towards God. You know, we're instilled with values given to us by our parents and those who raise us. But at the same time, we talked about that Romans passage about God's law being written on our hearts. You know, an emotion, a complex emotion like guilt, when you've wronged someone and feeling like, man, I really screwed that up. Evolution and the naturalist perspective would say, get rid of that. Guilt doesn't help you move forward. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot to unpack and more in there, but let's, let's carry on. Any of the thoughts, where did your sense, your personal convictions come from? How about for the second question? If morality, cosmology, and the design of the universe don't point towards a creator, what do you think they point towards? What else is out there? 
Have I convinced you all that well? Can we, like, close the door on the problem of God's existence? Or you just all want pulled pork and brisket, right? Let me close with this. We started with this thought, this key thought. It's better to base our beliefs on what is true rather than what we feel or what we want to be true. And I actually think that the problem of God's existence has been so well studied and debated and researched by minds way greater than our own for thousands and thousands of years that we've reached a point that if you want to say that God does not exist, the responsibility of proving God's non-existence lies with you. I believe that we have debated this question to death. There is no logical, no rational way to say, well, if we look at everything around us, if we look at who we are as human beings and everything we know, that it does not point towards God's existence. In fact, when people say, I, can't just be- I just can't believe in God, if you've maybe, you know, you've sat with, with someone who holds an atheist or an agnostic perspective, and I hope you have friends who are atheists and agnostics that you can have great conversations with because it only makes us both sharper to, to debate and discuss and wrestle through with these things when we do it with grace and we do it with truth and we do it with compassion for one another. But here's what I think. If people are honest with themselves, brutally honest, the reason they don't believe in God is rarely based on logic and reason. In fact, the reasons why people don't believe in God actually have to do with the next six weeks of this series, not this week. See, usually what happens is maybe they were told, well, when you go off to university, just don't believe what your professors say. Because they were never given a fully formed understanding of how science and faith are actually closely related. And so when that university prof that has a chip on his shoulder decides to tear a strip into Christianity, we haven't equipped people to actually respond intelligently and rationally. Or maybe there's been a personal pain in our lives and we wonder how could God exist if this pain happened to me, if this suffering that someone else inflicted, how could God let that happen? That's a big one. And we're going to tackle that on September 23rd and I hope you are here for that because we're going to wrestle into this deeply because it's one of the biggest reasons. the, The next one, hypocrisy. We've all been hurt by people who claimed to be following Jesus. Every one of us sitting in this room could think of a time. And do we look at that and say, well, God can't exist because the people that follow God don't, re- don't represent him at all. And that's a tough one. That's one that, that's an us issue. If we choose to say we believe, that's up to us to wrestle through and work through. And so we're going to tackle that one. The problem of sex, we're talking about what God says about sex and what God created sex to be and how it's actually meant for our benefit and it's meant to be good. But there is so much shame and guilt and pain wrapped up around human sexuality that we don't know how to tackle this one anymore. In fact, most of us would rather let that one go. But it's something we've got to wrestle with. The problem of exclusivity, maybe sometimes you come across someone and you're like, I really respect this person, but they're, they don't... They don't follow God. How can my perspective be any different than theirs? This is that moral relativism creeping back in. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That is a claim of exclusivity. And we don't like exclusive comments, especially us Canadians. Like, we really 
are terrible with exclusivity because we want everyone to feel welcome and we should want everyone to feel welcome and loved and cared for. But there's a difference between respecting people's beliefs and saying that other beliefs and other worldviews and other religions are true. And we're going to tackle that one together. And the last one is the problem of Jesus. Oftentimes people don't believe in God because their understanding of who Jesus is has been fragmented and been corrupted. And it's been this incomplete view of who God is. And when life happens, we can't match those two up. And because of what we've been taught or how we understand, how we see Jesus doesn't match the rest of our worldview, it falls apart. And so we need to have a robust and full understanding of who God is because God loves us deeply. He wants to be in a relationship with every single person he created. Even that person who cuts you off on the way here, God loves them deeply and wants to share his love with them. I know it's a hard concept, but we've got to wrap our heads around it. That's what we're going to wrestle with in this series. And so I really want you to plan to be here each week through this. If you want to dig into these topics further, pick up the book. But let me pray for us, and then we're going to have an amazing meal together. God, thank you for who you are, that you saw fit to love us so dearly. You saw fit to create us to be in a life-giving relationship with you. And God, I pray that as we explore these weeks of this series together, that you would be doing a deep inner work in our hearts. That you would be revealing your love and who you are, the truth of who you are to us. That you would break down whatever barriers and walls we have around these topics and allow us to see you through them and to see your heartbeat and to see your love. Because we know you aren't the problem. We know that you are calling us into a relationship with you. So God, I pray that you would help our minds to be clear and our hearts to be open to receive you. I pray that you would put us in conversations with people where we can share the truth of who you are with love and mercy and grace. And I pray that this would lead to amazing conversations that draw us closer to you. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.